Welcome to the Fine Art of Coaching. Two friends and senior coaches across oceans, Anindita Das and Maureen Oven, invite you to join us on a close and honest exploration of organizational life that brings a deeper perspective on leadership and important issues of the day. I'm Anindita Das, a senior coach in Beijing, China. I work with individuals, groups and corporates to educate and effect real change from inside out. I'm Maureen Owen, an executive coach in Brisbane, Australia. I support leaders, teams and organizations to navigate change and to work with challenges. Okay, welcome to our latest episode of Leadership Stories. Today we have a special treat for you, a, a friend and colleague of mine, David Mann. David is a HR business partner for a large organisation in Brisbane, Australia, and he, um, his specialty is leadership development, organisational development, and, and general human wrangler, I think. He has an uncanny capacity to navigate incredibly complex situations with great artistry and respect. And um, I've learned a great deal from him over, the, um, over a number of years that I've known David and he never ceases to inspire me or impress me. Um, and so when I know that he's facing a new challenge, I always um, I'm interested to see how he navigates it. So David is passionate about developing leaders, particularly inclusive leadership. And a lot of his work is focused around that, even when the title of his job doesn't um, explicitly say that, that's often the underlying theme. And he's also won a number of awards for his work, particularly with the LGBTI community, both employees and for the community at large. But let's um, not waste any more time talking about David. Our, our, he is um, also an athlete and an ABBA and Doctor Who fan, which so watch out for in his conversation for reference references to those things. So without um, further ado, I would love to introduce you to my friend, David Mann. Well, thank you, Maureen. I'm I'm hoping that what I say will live up to the magnificent introduction you've given me. But um, if it doesn't, I don't ever want to hear about it. I'll just go on in the fantasy that it did. So, um, yeah, if it doesn't live up to it, please don't write and let me know. But if it does, if it does live up to that introduction, I'd love to hear from people. Um, so, is there anything you wanted to start off with, Maureen? I know you had a few questions you sent me before yeah, we started. I, I... So. Yeah. I shouldn't I shouldn't probably control this interview should I, I should let you do that <laughs> well that's that's right um we do have some questions and no doubt you will inspire us to ask other questions but our favorite starting point is really David like we would love you to share with us and our audience just a few like a brief introduction to your journey as a leader 
Okay. I worked, I've worked in this organisation for some years now, um, I think quite successfully for the most part, and most successfully running under the radar, as I like to think about it. Um, I'm not in a position of hierarchical power, which suits me very well. Um, it has enabled me to develop my influencing skills, which I'll talk about a little bit later. Um, one of the areas that I was particularly able to develop those skills was in the area of diversity and inclusion, as you've mentioned, Maureen, and my organisation had a very comprehensive diversity and inclusion strategy for a number of years and a very successful strategy. And in one of the later refreshes about eight or nine years ago now, um, the organisation uh, chose to include uh, LGB people, so lesbian, gay, bisexual people for the first time. And uh, I identify with some of those communities and um, thought that was an interesting, brave and very welcome choice and kind of left it at that. And then after a year or two, I was talking to my manager at the time about what was happening in that arena and the answer was nothing. And we left it at that and I went away and thought about it and thought, well, if not me to act in this space, then who? And I don't mean that in an arrogant way, but I, I mean that in the sense of, well, I identify with those communities. Nobody's taking action, not from any want of desire, but I'm positioned to comment on at least part of those communities. I can't speak for, for lesbians or bisexuals, but I can speak for gay men. And so that, I guess, was the moment, and it sounds simple now, but I can I can say at the time it was anything but simple to step forward into that space. And I, I say it was anything but simple because, it, in a sense, while the, my close friends knew I was a gay man, nobody nobody else in the organisation did. And, and that was deliberate on my part because I didn't see it was relevant to my work in the organisation. So, in a sense, that was my organisational coming out. I guess. Um, it does sound like a bit of a cliche, but I can assure you at that time in this organisation, it took a bit of courage. No, it didn't. It took a lot of courage for me to step forward and A, identify personally with the LGB agenda because there's always that fear of rejection, um, yeah. particularly around the issue of sexual orientation and gender identity, as I, as I subsequently discovered. Um, but those communities in particular, not only those communities, I have to say, but those communities in particular because of the long history of persecution and, and violence, uh, those communities are particularly reluctant to step forward. So it, it was a risk. It was a calculated risk, I have to be honest. But I again, the, the, the driving imperative for me was if I don't do it, then who will? Um, and I'm not sure anybody would have, again, not through any deliberate negligence, but they didn't have the passion for promoting that part of the diversity and inclusion agenda that I did. The organisational coming out, like it was a little bit like the organisation had unlocked the closet door, so to speak, by mentioning LGB people in its organisational strategy. And I, I took the initiative, um, I say this without a trace of arrogance, but I took the initiative and opened that door inch by inch. Um, and it became a whole, the longer I worked in this space, um, the longer or the more obvious it became to me that the work I was doing was putting myself out in front of the organisation and leading this agenda. And I would never prior to this point have said I was a leader. I would have said primarily I was an influencer. But my work in this space has 
um, convinced me, probably reluctantly, that I, I can be a leader. And what that has led to for me is that, in fact, anybody can be a leader. You don't need to be in a position of hierarchical or organisational authority or power to lead. Um, the person who is at the lowest of the organisational hierarchy can be a leader. I know this isn't a particularly new idea, but it was the first time for me that it had become a reality. Um, and so I became very visible in the organisation as the person who was leading the LGB, and then it became the LGBT, so transgender people, and now it's the LGBTIQ plus agenda in this organisation. Um, so lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, intersex, queer, and pretty much everybody else. Um, so conscious that I didn't have organisational power, what I did was to recruit allies, um, advocates who don't identify with any of those communities, but who do have organisational power. So all very senior in the organisation, all handpicked uh, by myself and my manager, handpicked because they uh, we assessed their ability to influence other people because we were conscious that particularly in this area, this arena of sexual orientation, gender identity, um, we needed people who could influence without necessarily having uh, the power to do so. But we also needed people who did have the power to make decisions, decisions around information systems, around policies, around processes. And so we needed both and that's why we handpicked them. And for me, it was important. And I think this is true of any leaders. To be a leader for me, um, you don't have to be the only one running the race. In fact, it's really important that you're not. Um, it's really important to have allies or advocates who walk beside you on the path um, so that if you get tired, you can lean on their shoulder and they can take the lead in, in this, um, this process, whatever the process is. So it's not just me doing a Don Quixote thing jumping on my horse and going off to fight a windmill. It's a whole heap of us. Um, and for me, it was important to handpick those people because we had developed a strong relationship and we trusted each other. And for me, that was an important part, particularly again in this arena. But I think it's true of people who identify with diverse uh, communities as well. It, it's a personal thing and knowing that they have someone, um, for example, who's an Indigenous person, or an Aboriginal or a Torres Strait Islander person, I mean, knowing that somebody who's walking beside them uh, doesn't identify with that community, but the issue of um, Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander uh, visibility is as important to them as it is to the person who identifies. I think that that's a really important part of being a leader. It, it's not just your personal quest. Other people agree with you and they, they become, so to speak, your first followers. Again, now I know that's not a particularly new term, but... Um, Having allies um, makes it really easy for people, other people to identify with the agenda and and say, yeah, that's right. Um, marriage equality, it should be a no brainer. Uh, we should allow people who love each other to get married. And it really doesn't matter what the gender of the person is who you're marrying. Um, that became a community issue. And I think having a lot of allies and, and advocates um, was a crucial part of the process that we initiated I made it as easy for them as, as I could because I knew that this was a fairly contentious area for some people. So I made it really clear from the start that they could be as visible an ally as they chose and do small things like wear a rainbow-coloured lanyard, which isn't actually a small gesture. It has significant impact on, on people, not so much these days, but eight or nine years ago, it had a huge impact because it was the first time that people 
were wearing rainbow coloured lanyards or, or pins and it enabled people to say, what's that for? And then that allowed the allies to explain what LGBTIQ plus meant to them personally and why it was important for my organisation to promote inclusion of LGBTIQ plus people. And the same is true for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Having a, uh, an Indigenous flag or a Torres Strait Islander flag in the workplace, sometimes that's enough of a gesture for people to know, people who identify, to know that they are included. Um, it wasn't it wasn't an easy journey all the time. I chose to get with the organisation. I, I, I've run in my head, part of my, my wetware, as it's called, is that there's no skill in seeing the world from your own point of view. We're all experts at that. The real skill is, I, is trying to see the world from somebody else's point of view. And so when I started off in this, in this arena of LGBTIQ inclusion, I really wanted to understand the points of view of people who didn't agree with me and I, who didn't identify, because for me, that was the real skill in this area, understanding the mm, world from their point of yeah. view and why they might agree or disagree with me um, and having a discussion with them. I don't mind if if people continue to think that there's something unnatural about LGBTIQ plus people. I don't mind that. What I do mind is if they condemn without having a discussion with me, a rational discussion about why that is. I don't necessarily want to change their minds, but I do want to make it safe for everybody to bring their whole selves to work. And again, I know that's not a, a particularly new phrase, but it's really important for me that everybody can come to work. And at least for the seven or eight or nine hours that they're here, they know that they're welcome, they know they're included, and they know that they are connected to something bigger than themselves. That is really, really important for me as a, as a leader. Um, so a couple of the challenges that I, that I faced. David, I, I just, because you put up this question, why? And I'm, I'm really confused now because I, you know, I've always wondered about it. Historically, why has there been so much pushback about sexuality, uh, well, what, what have you know? I'm, I'm sure you've you have the answer. Well, I, I, I'm not sure, but one of the things I've come up with is a friend of mine says that the original division in human beings is the male-female dichotomy. It's the one thing that most people on the planet can say, okay, I'm not sure about much, but I know that I'm a man and I know that you're a woman and I know that men are attracted to women and women are attracted to men. We might not know much else about the human condition, but we do know that. Sexual orientation challenges that and says, well, I'm a man, but I might be attracted to other men um, and other women or no one or both or something else. Um, I might not understand much, but I don't know I'm, I'm born with the external um, manifestations of being a man, but in my, my mind, my head, which is where gender identity happens, I identify as being a woman. I know that despite all, when I look in the mirror, I don't represent who I feel. And I think that really challenges people. I know that really challenges people because it, for many people, they think it's against what they call the natural order of things. So we're, we're enculturated in this society, at least, not in not in every society, but in this society in Australia, we're enculturated from birth with and flooded, our society is flooded with imagery, which shows us the way things should be. And I use should with inverted commas. We should be attracted to women if we're men, because that's the way things are. That's the natural order. In fact, we know there are over 1,500 species in the animal kingdom, at least 1,500 species, who are same-sex attracted. So... 
people can say, well, they're animals. You could also mount an argument to say the human human beings are a higher form, but nevertheless still animals. So it's not that it's necessarily unnatural. Uh, for fear of offending people, I won't go into the arguments that are contained in various religious scripts. Um, suffice to say that some religions do acknowledge at least six forms of um, uh, sexual orientation or gender identity. Um, the Judeo-Christian tradition isn't one of those, but it's not the only religion in, on the planet either. So I think to answer your question, Anandita, it's one of those fundamental things that people feel very challenged by. And that's obviously the root of homophobia, transphobia, um, and it's, it's a fear of the unknown. Uh, I guess at, at its heart, I don't know what it would be like if I'm a man to be attracted to another man. I've never seen any imagery. That's less common now, but for, for much of our lives, it, it would be the case that people have not seen many images on billboards about same-sex attracted couples or, heaven forbid, same-sex people who have children. I mean, that's an even greater outrage for some people. So my approach has always been, let's let's have a discussion about it. I don't necessarily want to change your mind, but I do want to understand why this is such a challenge for you. It's the least interesting part of my personality. It, it really is not the most interesting thing about me. I, as Maureen said in the introduction, I can quote Doctor Who episodes <laughs> from the whole 769 <laughs> Strong. I can verify I, that. <laughs> I, I can, and I will, before the end of this interview, find a way to weave it in. I think that's more interesting. More interesting is the fact that in any organisational situation, if it's a change situation, I can rewrite ABBA lyrics and sing them to bring in change management to the <laughs> tune of Mamma Mia or Dancing Queen. And I have done that, as Maureen, you would remember. I I can do that, I think, is yeah. much more interesting than who I love or who I might be attracted to. And I think the same is true for everybody else. If the thing that I'm worried about is that one woman is attracted to another woman, I probably need to examine myself and get, get a hobby. Um, I just... <laughs> Exactly. Great. If you love somebody and somebody loves you, isn't that wonderful? Isn't that a wonderful thing? Does it matter what gender they identify with? I don't think it does. You love somebody and somebody loves you back. How fantastic is that? We should be encouraging more of that. Like a little bit of love on the planet, particularly now, wouldn't go astray, I think. It's yeah. not so important who it is. Yeah. Yeah. David, I, imag I can imagine when you started your um, advocacy for the LGBT um, community in your organization. And I hear you say that things before that was, things before that were crazy. I'm not getting the right word, but scary. So yes. I, I'm, I'm interested in knowing when you were growing up, who were, who were the guides or mentors that you looked up to, particularly in this area? Were there any? Did you have to hide it? How did yes, I did have to hide it. Hmm? Well, I did. I, I was never explicitly told that I had to hide my um, sexual orientation. I, to be honest, I, it wasn't. <clears throat> my family of origin didn't dis encourage discussions about sexual orientation. So I grew up, I, I probably got to about 15 before it became a thing for me. Um, and I went to a boarding school, all-male boarding school. And that was the first time it had occurred to me that I could, that there was a, such a thing as sex. And that was my family of origin. I don't, I don't blame them. That was how they were brought up. 
we just didn't talk about things like that. My parents both loved me. And when I ultimately came out, it was, you know, it wasn't an issue for them and, and still isn't. Um, but in terms of what I saw when I was growing up in society, what I saw were um, binary attractions. So male to female, female to male, and that's it. I was fortunate to go to a boarding school where there was no um, um, molestation of the kids by the, by the, it was a religious school, but there was, well, I was really lucky there was no um, inappropriate behaviour by any of the people running the school. So it was literally a fairly sexless environment. So I left boarding school with pretty much not a clue. Um, I was very fortunate in that my all my family loved me and I had a couple of aunts in particular who and my and one of my grandmothers who made it clear that they loved me unconditionally and I think I'm pretty fortunate in that regard that to this day two of my aunts maintain that I'm the perfect child I'm not a child but anyway I still go with it because it sounds pretty good to me um, and I think I'm one of the lucky ones who as I said, had a family that when I eventually came out, it was pretty much, oh, yeah. Uh, anyway, so what's for dinner again? So it was that kind of, so, but I think I'm rare. I know I have friends who that wasn't the case for. I know I have uh, friends whose families disowned them um, as recently as three years ago when they, when they disclosed to their families that they were attracted to another woman or another man. They, they no longer have a family. That may change. All things do change. But it's a pretty painful experience for mm. them to feel cut yeah. off from their family of origin. The one, the one thing you should be able to count on is your family. I think in life, if they don't love you or you think they don't love you, that's pretty hard to deal with um, because who have you got? You've got your friends and for many LGBT people, their their friends become their second family because they do accept them unconditionally. The the warty bits, the beautiful bits, the incomplete bits, the the less than perfect bits, they they are accepted. And I wasn't. I luckily didn't have that experience. My family accepted me warts and all. Doesn't mean we didn't argue and they don't think I'm an idiot sometimes. But I know they still love me. So that that for me is more important. But in the society that I grew up in, and Dita in this state of Queensland for a long time, um, homosexual people were treated very badly indeed. They were bashed, they were imprisoned, they were baited, they were sometimes murdered. I know this still happens across the planet. Part of the, the reason we have a Wear It Purple Day is the large, the large number of rainbow children who are bullied sometimes to suicide by the fact that their own friends don't accept that they could be same-sex attracted or queer or transgender or wh whatever the, the version of LGBTIQ plus is that they identify with. It's still happening. And my, my, my heart breaks to think that people, and I know this is true for, for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, people with people who are culturally and linguistically diverse, for women, they're not accepted for who they are. Society, some parts of society want to want to remake them into something that's more acceptable and easier to comprehend. Um, so I know that was a bit of a rambly answer to your question, but I, th I think I did get there in the end. Yeah, David, you're, and I know that you've thought about the challenges that you've encountered on this journey. And I guess what's most present for me is the courage that it's taken really to step into consciously step into that leadership role in the organization and really declare 
who you are and take a very visible role in that. And so I'm wondering how, how you navigated that challenge, how you actually tapped into the courage that was required to do that. Well, um, I did have, as I said, a manager who was, um, she was more than sympathetic. She was right beside me. She was my first ally and her manager was my second ally. They were both, their, their approach and my approach eventually became easier to beg forgiveness than ask permission. Like there are some things we did which no one explicitly in the organisation said, I hereby bestow upon you the authority to take this action. The three of us just said, well, look, well, let's just do it. And it's a calculated risk. It's not going to break anybody. And we got away with a lot of that stuff. Having them beside me enabled me, and it was a bit of a push, I'll be honest. As I said, it, it was a bit of a moment for me to step forward and say, okay, I identify as a gay man. Um, the organisation didn't fall over. No one stopped working. Everyone just kind of said, oh, yeah, yeah, fascinating, and just kept on with it. <laughs> but I did have to push myself, and I consciously put myself in situations that I found personally uncomfortable, but I knew when necessary, if I was going to really step in to this leadership role, I couldn't do it in a half-hearted way. I had to fully occupy the space of being in a leader with everything that entailed, which would sometimes be people saying, who do you think you are? People saying, you don't have any authority in this space. People saying, you've gone too far. But my personal preference is I really like being in a support role. Part of my job is fully supporting people to do their, their management roles. This space required me to step onto the stage and be in the spotlight, and that isn't a natural place for me, but I, I knew I couldn't do it in a half-hearted way. Otherwise, it'd, people would people would it would bleed into how I presented. It would it would contaminate what I was doing and people would somehow pick up because people aren't stupid they notice stuff um particularly when i think i'm being particularly clever in hiding things people work it out they're real most people are pretty smart at that sort of thing i knew if i did this in anything other than a full way they would pick up on it and they'd come to a conclusion that i wasn't serious about it so why should they be and so i can deliberately put myself in situations where I was uncomfortable, where I was stretching myself, because I, a part of me also knew that I was asking people to challenge what they thought was, as I said before, the natural order of things. And I knew that I couldn't, in all honesty, ask them to challenge themselves and not challenge myself at the same time. That's not how leadership works for me. You, you, you can't stand up, as I've done time after time after time, in front of a group of senior managers and expect them to push themselves if I'm not prepared to do the same thing myself. I never made that explicit to groups, but I'm very confident that, that would have come across in the way I presented and what I was saying and how I was saying it. The other thing I was very conscious of in saying that like I'd, I would regularly get up and have my knees knocking, you know, metaphorically. And I know my voice didn't tremble because it doesn't, but I was petrified that something would go wrong or somebody had challenged me. And that did occasionally happen, but I never, uh, I was always able to, to not assume I had the answer. Part of my, again, part of my wet wear is I don't have to know all the answers, even as a leader, it's not critical for me to be the encyclopedia for whatever the topic is. If I'll be presenting in a room of 20 senior executives, 
I reckon at least half of them have got the answers that I don't have. So if somebody did challenge me or did ask a question, I was pretty easily able to say, well, I don't know the answer to that, but some of you will. What, what do you reckon? You sitting in the front row or you with the really, you know, vibrant jacaranda coloured dress? I reckon you've got an answer. You look like you're about to say. So I was able to not assume I, I would knew, know the answer to everything. Um, and I think that that's been incredibly helpful. When I did go, when I have been in formal leadership roles, I've never made that assumption that I knew everything there was to know because I don't. I don't think anybody does. And I think it's unhelpful to assume that as a leader, you have to. You don't. It's okay. You know, David, like I, people I, are generally pretty forgiving. I have a question. Because you mentioned Rainbow and we know this story. Not everyone in the world knows, but, you know, we in the Judeo-Christian world know this story perhaps is that at the end of a rainbow, you always find a treasure. Once you get, you know, <laughs> there it's, the rainbow is a bridge and you find a treasure. So how far are we or how close are we from finding this treasure? A bit of a way. I think LGBTIQ people in particular are a lot closer than some of our um our allies who identify, for example, as culturally or linguistically diverse. I don't think as, and I'm again talking about Australian society and, and maybe Queensland society, we could be more accepting. We're a lot better, like we're, I think we're a lot more relaxed around people who don't look, sound or feel like us. And, I, you know, we have to overcome some of our innate biases there. Uh, my, um, my thing, my, my mantra, I guess, is that, okay, so as an LGBTIQ plus person, I, I now have marriage equality. That's great. Does it mean I, there aren't other things that I should be focusing on? No, there are. But I look at my friends who identify as Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander, and I now think, well, it's my job to step up as their advocate and their ally, not so much their advocate, more their ally, and walk beside them. Because in my head, we're not like we're not all okay as a society until we're all okay. And at the moment, we have Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people fighting for a whole range of rights that everybody else takes for granted. We have refugees coming into the country. We have women who are far from being considered equal. Um, we have people with different levels of ability. So until we're all okay, we're not all okay. Um, so in terms of the pot of gold, we can see it, I think. Um, I don't think we'll ever have everybody in society saying everyone is welcome to bring their whole selves to work. That's part of the human condition is that we get challenged by people who aren't like us and that's part of our innate bias. But we, I think it's our responsibility as a society to make it as easy as it can be for people to be themselves. And that involves everybody challenging themselves, just like I did when I started this journey. It is challenging to interact with people who aren't like me. And that means I've got to try a bit harder because that's what being a human being, for me, that's what being a leader is about. David, what advice um, would you give other future leaders? Get an ally, get an advocate, get a trusted advisor, get a coach, have somebody walk beside you. Don't assume you have to do it yourself. You don't. You probably could, but you don't have to. And sometimes you'll get tired. I Early on, about a year out from finishing up in the role, I identified my successor. 
I knew I was coming to the end of my time. I'd taken it as far as I could, but I knew he was going to take it in a whole other direction. He had a lot of energy, a lot of enthusiasm, a lot of passion, and a lot of ideas that I would never have had. So I knew I didn't have to do it myself. So I worked with him so that he could step into the shoe, my shoes, metaphorically, pretty um, seamlessly. In terms of advice, I reckon just try it. If it doesn't work, try it again. Do, be like Doctor Who. When Doctor Who gets to the end of his <laughs> or now her journey, she regenerates into a new person. And that's how I feel as a leader, you, you kind of have to be. Try it. If it doesn't work, well, try something else. Everybody's always changing. Um, we're all stories in the end, as Doctor Who said. We're all stories in the end. Just make sure that yours is a good one. Um, and the other advice from Doctor Who I'd give is just be kind. Like that's all you have to do as a human being. Be kind. If that's if that's what you do as a leader, if that's what you do as a human being, I reckon the planet would be a bit of a an easier place to work on. So just be kind. Never ever eat pears, but I don't think that applies to everybody. That's a, another Doctor Who thing. Pears yeah. are okay, I think, but the David main thing is be kind. Ask for help. When you ask for help and it's offered, take it. Don't be so, you know, caught up in yourself that you think you can't accept help. Everybody could do with it with a shoulder to lean on or a walking stick to lean on or whatever it is. It doesn't have to be a lonely journey and it shouldn't. It's actually more fun when you share it with other people. So if if you can overcome yourself, as I had to, to ask for help, um, take it when it's offered. <laughs> take it. <laughs> Thank you, David. Some so more Doctor Who quotes rolled into <laughs> a minute. <laughs> I know. I know. I didn't David, get any ABBA lyrics in, but I'm sure people can make that up for themselves. Well, but we're coming to the end of our time, David, and so I'm. There's still an opportunity in winding up. Like, what's one last message you'd like to leave people with today? Um, I think my, my last message would be the mantra that I mentioned earlier. Well, two mantras, actually. A, there's no skill in seeing the world from your own point of view. It mm -hmm. takes real courage to try and see the world from somebody else's point of view. And I don't mean putting your filter on their worldview. I mean, really stepping into their shoes, which means using your mouth and your ears in the proportion they were given to you. So less talking and more listening. The other piece of advice I'd give is there's a song um, called Walk a Mile in My Shoes. I think the artist is Dan South. I could be wrong on that. Joe South. And the line in that is before you abuse, criticise and accuse, walk a mile in my shoes. And I reckon there are two, two, th two things that I try and live my life by. I'm not saying they're easy because sometimes they're really hard. To walk a mile in somebody's shoes who I don't particularly get along with yeah, there's so much to be, uh, I think, um, so much to be gained from seeing the world from somebody else's point of view and to be able to say, it's a joy for me to be able to say, honestly, I'd never thought of it like that. Like that's a true joy for me. I think how fantastic. I've now seen the world from a different perspective. I've got a gain from that. And it helps me to connect with other people when I do that. So a long, long wrap up, but there you go. David, thank you. And like I agree with you, like when people show you a new way to look at something or experience the world, it expands our world. And so, like, it's exciting. Yeah, David, it is. It is exciting. 
you've I think like I feel like you've expanded our, our understanding and view of the world t- today so it's been such a pleasure to have you join us and Indita do you have any final things that you would like to say I would just like to say I wish this episode never ended because it was a, such a joy <laughs> and inspiration to talk to you David and I hope we can invite you for a second podcast or a third one or a fourth one because it is really inspiring. <laughs> and I think this message needs well, to go far and wide. So it's not only for me, but also that it is helpful in spreading the message of kindness, compassion, um, you know, inclusivity. What is the word, Maureen? Please, in, please. Inclusi- inclusivity. Oh, inclusivity, I was right. <laughs> um yes, she was. so yes wonderful thank you so much david for your time and 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 everything that you've shared and your courage as well that you started that the 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 moment and you you know you started i don't want to say the journey i want to say a flame that you started the spark yes <laughs> well thank you and thank you thank you for inviting me along to speak of i hope there was something in there uh, if only people racing to check out the latest Doctor Who episode. I'll be happy with that. And is there an ABBA line that you want to leave us with, David? Well, it's a bit topical. As it happens, there is. Um, As we speak, there's uh, uh, two new ABBA tracks, the first new material they've recorded in 39 years. The title of one of them, I think, is appropriate for our chat, and it's I Still Have Faith in You. And I, I apply that to the human race. I still have faith in you. That's a beautiful note to end on. Yes. Yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you, David. Thank you both. Our next episode is Kate Hitzke, leadership and organizational consultant in a wide variety of organizational settings. She is a rich source of wisdom and knowledge. Come and listen to her for your monthly dose of leadership stories.